0: Romans chapter 8 I got to be honest with you in in Romans chapter 8 I have look been so looking forward to this particular uh, message or this particular passage that I want to preach on ever since I knew I was going to do Romans 8 it is without a doubt probably uh, to me anyhow uh, the most single passage in the Bible that uh, that just you know, continually motivates me into what I, and and I was so excited about, you know, getting it to the point, and then when I started to put it all out, I thought to myself, how in the world do I ever preach this? And I, you know, I, I as I stand before you this morning, i I got to confess to you, I still don't know how to preach it, uh, but we're going to let the Lord do the best He can with me this morning on it. But uh, you remember last week in chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, we saw a great truth. I showed you one of the most practical layouts in the Word of God of how to keep from being deceived. We talked about how that it's no secret to anybody in this room, if you're, if you're saved, that uh, you understand that uh, the, the goal of the devil is to deceive you. He deceives unsaved people, he deceives saved people. His deception is not just limited to certain people. Anybody can be deceived. And we talked about last week that how to keep from being deceived. We defined the concept, one of the greatest practical layouts that you'll ever get in your life of what it means when the Bible talks about having the witness of the Spirit of God. We talked about how to try the spirits to see if they be of God or not. And, and these last week, if you're ever going meaning, to meaningfully do anything for God, and I think that many of you probably will, this is absolutely essential. Once the devil knows that he can never get your soul in hell, once he realizes that once you've gotten saved, you have passed from death into life, from darkness to light, When he realizes that, he knows you'll never get your soul in hell again. But what he does realize is that he'll be, he'll be so glad to let you go to heaven as long as you don't influence anybody else in your life and you just stay saved but never influence and talk to anybody else or ever get on fire for God and do what God wants you to do. In other words, His main goal is going to be to deceive us. Now in section two of Romans chapter eight, remember we broke Romans eight down into four complete sections so we could break it down. This chapter or this particular Romans 8 that we're looking at this section is what I call a building block section. The Bible has a number of them. When I mean that, I mean by this. Each part stands alone and teaches a great truth. But also these great truths will build itself into a central truth or the next truth to form a complete idea. In other words, they stand alone and teach us a great principle. but when you put them together, it crystallizes a complete idea or a concept that Rome, Romans chapter 8 is trying to get, a, get across. We saw, remember, last week in verse 15, and I'm just going to regroup here for a few moments for the new folks that maybe weren't here last week, or maybe you missed last week. Uh, but it also, we've got to see this to move in where we're going today. We looked at verse 15, that the Bible says, we saw that we have not received, the Bible says, the spirit of bondage, but we've received the spirit of adoption that put us into God's family. We also learned that when we got saved, when this spiritual adoption took place that that was not by the spirit of the world or the spirit of bondage, that set us free from the bondage we were under as unsaved people of the world. Verse Verse 16 then says, Because of that, we now have the witness of the spirit of God in our lives. We explained that. And this is how you keep from being deceived. And it's very important that you understand the aspect of of why you should not be deceived so you can understand what I'm going to say to you today, because the two really go together. We now completely understand that when you got saved, you got the Holy Spirit of God living inside you. We also know that the Holy Spirit of God is the author of the Bible. And He wrote the Bible uh, to you and to me by the Spirit of God, and that same Spirit of God lives inside you today if you're saved. Now, the way that you keep from being deceived and the reason why you are not under bondage anymore is because the same spirit that lives in you is the same spirit that wrote the book. So what he does is he takes the principles in the book and then bears witness with your spirit and his spirit that's inside you that something is real, something is not, something is right, something is wrong. And what he has simply done is this, folks. God has something that He wants you and I to accomplish in our lives. Obviously, the devil wants to stop us. There's only one way the devil can stop you if you're saved. He can't get you to lose your salvation. He can't take back from you what God has given you. The only way the devil can stop you and me from being and doing and accomplishing what God wants us to accomplish is by deceiving us. And that's why God gave us a process once we got saved. He said, we're not under bondage. The Spirit that saved us delivered us from the spirit of the world that put us in bondage. And now you and I, now that we're saved, we have the witness of the Spirit of God that we never have to be deceived with anything in life because we have the Spirit of the book, the Spirit of God in me, and the principles that balance it all out And there is no reason, absolutely no reason, for a child of God to be deceived and not accomplish what God wants uh, to accomplish in our lives uh, unless we allow that deception to take place that puts us back under bondage. Now today we're going to look at verses 17 and 18. And I want to begin reading in verse 15, so go to Romans chapter 8, pick it up in verse 15, and here's what we've got here. Here's what you want to see. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now we have looked at both of these verses and we just explained them again so you get a context of where we're at today. Now here it comes, 17 and 18. Wow. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. So if uh, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we all, may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Father, we thank You and praise You for the Lord Jesus, and we love You so much. Thank You for all that You do for us. Thank You for all that You've given us. Thank You for each one here today. Thank You for the Bible that you provided for us, for this church that You've uh, just worked through in Your own timing, Lord, and brought to us where we're at today. And Lord, I thank You for all that You've given us, for everything that You've accomplished here. I thank You for the men and the women that You've made, uh, Lord, uh, uh, the, the really the backbone of this church, that we might today come and leave here today a little better uh, in understanding of all that You have for us. Help us today, Lord. Help me today. <coughs> this is a difficult message for me to preach because I don't know how to preach this i don 't know how to convey this is not something that I can just open up like a like a another verse and just lay it out. This thing is so in my heart and it, it just it just seems like it 's impossible to convey that what I see in here in my own heart uh, that you 've given in this verse to help these people better understand it but lord i 'll do the best i can i forgive me where i failed thee Lord and by the Spirit of God, give me the power, the wisdom, and the discernment to say what needs to be said today in a way that, that is uh, workable, Father, to Your Spirit and permissive, Lord, to Your will. And we'll thank You for all You do now. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Remember that Thursday night when we did uh, New Year's Eve and we talked about the Song of Solomon, And I told you that the Song of Solomon, without a doubt, was the most intimate book in the Bible for you and for me. The, the, the equivalent of that book in the New Testament would be the book of Ephesians. But I showed you how that, that, that the book of Song of Solomon does many things. <coughs> yes, it shows you and I <coughs> how to have the right relationship with Christ. It's a unique book because it shows me how Christ looks at me. It's a unique book because it then shows me how I'm to look back at Christ. It's an incredible book. Absolutely incredible. But one of the other things that it does, and it does so many things, I told you that is the book that no matter what you go through in life and what you struggle with, and we all go through things in life, we all struggle with them. But whatever you go through in life, whatever you deal with in life, whatever you have to put up with in life, the book, the book of Song of Solomon, I guess probably if one of the greatest things that it does is that it always keeps you focused on what God has called you to do, and what God wants you to do. I think that probably in a child of God's life, the greatest single thing that is really relative to where that Christian really does what he needs to do or she needs to do in her life is that simple little word, the word focus. To me, the job of a pastor, is very simple. It's very simple. And my job as a pastor, I, in my own mind anyhow, is simply this. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in everything that we do, trying to keep us focused as a church. There's so many things that get us off focus. There's so many things that will come into our life, come into this church, come into your world, my world that will that will absolutely uh, keep us off focus. And I believe the job of a pastor, when he figures out what's going on, if, if he ever does. <coughs> is that when he's in charge of a church and he's responsible for that body of believers, that his job basically is one-fold. I believe that everything else will fall in line and take care of itself if he can do one thing and do it well, and that is to keep the church focused in the midst of the troubling times that we're in. And there's a lot, let's face it, there is so much today that get us off focus We live in the most perilous times that we could ever want, and it ain't going to get any better. I mean, I'm happy that Israel is going to take over the world here in the next couple of days. I'm I'm happy about that. But we also know that in our own lives, in our own worlds, in our own families, in our own work environments, or whatever we do, uh, just the daily issues of life, we also know that uh, there's a lot of things we have to struggle with and a lot of things that will try to knock us off focus. I've found in my own life, and, and basically that's what this is going to be today. I've come to the conclusion that I can't preach this. That all I can do is try to convey to you what this verse means to me. And maybe through that, <clears throat> some way, some shape, some form, you'll have a better understanding of how to apply it into your own life. Because grasping the context, grasping the concept of the area that the number one thing in our life, not only as a church but as individuals, is keeping our focus, is one of the most pressing issues that we have today. I was talking to a young lady last week, in fact I was talking to another young lady last night, and uh, the, the first young lady I was talking to, uh, we were talking about uh, some the ministry, she's uh, and her husband worked with me and, and things and helped me, and uh, we were talking about some of the people that they are working with and, and some of the people that they have worked with, and, 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 and many times that people that, you know, they work with me in ministry with people, <coughs> one of the greatest tools is as you work with them and things come up that you don't understand how to deal with, <coughs> you bring it to me, I help you, and I teach you while you can teach them, and it's just a great learning process. And I was talking to her for, <coughs> for, for quite a while, <clears throat> and she was telling me and laying out for me, you know, where they were at, what they were doing with this couple and, uh, and these people and how they were, they were laying it all out. And, I, and, and she said to me, she said this, she says, you know what, she says, sometimes it gets overwhelming. She says, sometimes it just really dealing with people and their problems and the things that they go through, it, it can be exasperating. And that's a, that's a true statement. And I said to her this, I said, you know what, I know that's true. But let me tell you this, and I've never told you this before. But I've watched you now for a couple of years, and uh and I, I want to tell you, there's something about you and your husband, and I told this to another gal last night. There's something about that it that you have that I think in ministry is probably the rarest quality that you can find. I think that it's and I and I don't know how to teach it into anybody. I wish I could, I wish I could just. I wish I could have this formulated in a bottle someplace or or synthesize it down to pills and just give it to people, but I don't know how to do it. I've never found an applicable way to teach it. Maybe it can't be taught. Maybe it has to come through a person understanding what I'm talking about today. But I said, you know, i watch you guys. I said, you have families like everybody else. You have kids. You're involved in ministry in this church, yet your kids have things at school. You, have, you, you both work. I mean, it isn't like you sit around all day and don't have anything to do. <coughs> your life is as busy in an outward fashion with all that you do out there that does anybody I know. And I said, you know what, you got family and you do things with your family and you got, uh, you know, you got your own kids, you got, you got your jobs, you got your own social things that you do, you have friends you do things with. And I said, but in the midst of that, I've, know, I've watched this, in the midst of this, with all that you have going on and you work with people and you do things in the ministry, with all this going on, the thing that I think that is, and, and you guys are really coming along well with the Bible, but I said, even better than that, the thing that I think stands out, and I said, I've got other people in the church that, that I wish I had more, but I've got a, a, a couple other people in the church that really uh, fall into the same line. No matter what happens, no matter what you do, no matter how involved you get, no matter what goes on in the world, you never seem to lose your focus of what's really important in life and what you're trying to do. I, everybody's got, you're no, you're, you're no better off or worse than anybody else. You have kids, you have family, you have things you got to adjust, you have schedules you got to work around. But it's the greatest commodity that I can find in an individual that no matter what goes on in our world, no matter what happens, no matter what we got to balance out, that at the end of the day, you're focused on what, you, what the reality is of what your real purpose here is on life. That's a rare thing, folks. That's a rare thing that's worth a hundred million dollars in gold bullion at the judgment seat of Christ. I don't find many people have that today. And the reason why is because the devil knows as well as I do and as well as most of you do that if he can knock you off your game, you want to you wanna, you wanna, you wanna make a good bet on the Super Bowl and, and really get the thing to the place where you can win a lot of money? Well, whenever there, you do, you're raise your head, yes, okay, okay, then I'm going to talk to you then. Nobody else cares, but you do. I want to talk to you. Here's what you do. Here's what you do. Find out who's going to win, okay? And when they're in the locker room, coming out to the deal to play the game, find the quarterback, find a guy who handles the snaps for the field goals, and find a kicker, and just tell them, now this is a dirty trick, but this is what you do, just tell them, tell them one. Your wife just left you. She left you for somebody else. Tell the other one, we just got news. Your mother just died. Tell the other one, well, he's a kicker. You could just about tell him anything and screw his day up. <laughs> if you give them bad news, <clears> that's tragic news in their life, even though it's not true, and then they go out to play the game, Are they going to be at the top of their game? You think if you found out before, well, this is a stupid thing. Some of you would say, absolutely. If you would say, think, somebody would tell you your wife just left you before the game started. Like I said, some of you would say, (laughs) hey, praise the Lord. (laughs) I'm out of here. But in normal relationships, you think that when you got to focus on that game, that you've got to focus on this. That you've got to be thinking the plays ahead and focus. You think that's where your mind's going to be? You think if you're, to me, the hardest job in a football game, I would think. You're talking about a pressure job. It's that guy that stands down there and catches a snap and has to get it down. I would have every finger broken on my hands if that was my job. I might get the ball and get it down, but I'm so stupid, I'd hold the ball and put my hand back here and he'd kick me right in the back of my hand. Or i get my finger down here and break my finger. I think the most pressured job in the world in a football game is to be that guy, especially if you're going to win the game with this, that you've got to be exact, that you catch. You only got a second, and there's 20 other, 10 other guys out there want to kill you. You've got to catch the ball, get it down, get it wrangled, get it right, get out of the way, and let that guy kick it. To me, that's the toughest thing in the world. Would you like to try to do that under the pressure that they're under? Well, just add to that by saying, right before he gets it, your mom just died. Bad news. We're going to wait to tell you after the game, but that wouldn't be fair. I guarantee you, he'll drop the ball, throw the ball. He won't do He'll. You'll get him off his game. That's what the devil does to you and me. He allows the circumstances in our world. And many times it isn't true to the degree that those things aren't true, but nevertheless, He knows how to get us off focus. And when you're off focus, you're not focused. And that's the things that he does. Now, how do you get around that? I told this gal, uh, you know, I said, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me with all that you have got to do and all that you balance in your life yet how focused you seem to always be, you and your husband, that whatever needs to be done, you know, everything is balanced by the time you get there. I don't understand it. It's an incredible thing. It's a rare quality to find in, in people's lives today. Now, focus to me and keeping your focus to me, I, I find in my life, and I have to break every day down very simple. And I have given this to you one time before, maybe not everybody, maybe we talked about in a selective group when we were dealing with leadership or something. But I, I talked about defining your focus is basically four real basic, simple concepts. And they all start with P, which I love because it's easy for me to remember. I call them the four Ps. The first one is perspective. The second one is purpose. The third one is your passion. And the fourth one is patience. Now, very quickly, I want to I I define each of these, and this is going to build into where we're going here. Because this is, if you want to keep your focus, this are the, these are the four basic, simple rudiments that you have to put into your world and put into your life. The first one is perspective. You know what that is, very simply and basic? And these aren't complicated. It's God's standpoint. It's, it's looking past the smoke and the mirrors of life and the games of life and really just dealing and looking at, from God's standpoint, the reality of life. You know what the second one is? It's purpose. You know what purpose is? Well, purpose comes from perspective. Once you understand that you see something in a perspective, then purpose is the action of that perception. And purpose is what you do. It's it's why you're here today. It's, It's what's the point of all this if there's no purpose to it. The third one is passion. Now, passion to me is is really an incredible key because passion is what really drives you and me. It's the difference between the average Christian and a Christian that stays focused. To me, passion defines a person. And I've watched people now for almost 40 years. I've watched them in every scenario. I've seen really good Christians, really bad Christians. I've seen Christians in the middle. I've seen people in every shape and form. And I've got to tell you, after that much exposure with people, I can honestly say that passion is what defines you and me. I heard a preacher say, and I wish I would have thought of this. It's, it's so basic, but it's absolutely profound. I heard a preacher say this a number of years ago. He says, if you want to really know what a man or a woman is made of, if you really want to know, get an insight into their character of who they are, he says, it's not hard. He said, just look at two things. And it is the most simplest, but it's the most profound thing. He said, just look at, one, what makes them really angry, and two, what makes them really happy. And I thought to myself, that is one of the most profound things because you know what? That speaks to where our passion is. You see, as a child of God, we had to hate sin. But in many, many cases, Christians, they enjoy sin. See? In, in other words, it's just the reverse process of where they're at. And passion is what defines you. Passion is what really defines any person. You know what? If, if there was one phrase, if there was one phrase that when people saw you or your name came up, and it's true, really, whether you know it or not, when people hear your name, that know you, the way they identify, and it's just part of being a human, they identify with something about you that really speaks to your passion. They really do. And in your mind, in my mind, if people had to sum you and I up in one phrase that defines what you really... and what your passion really is, I wonder what it would be. I wonder if somebody heard the name Bob Alexander, would they think the word faithful or would they think the word unfaithful? When they heard the word but my name, Bob Alexander, would they think the word honest or would they think the word dishonest? When they heard your name, would they think of the Bible? Would they think of people because you're a people person? Would they think unreliable? Would they think reliable? Would they think well-disciplined? Would they think dysfunctional? Would they think undisciplined? Wouldn't they think, well, that, that when they say your name, would they say that is a man of His Word? Or would they say, boy, you ask Him to do something, He puts it off for 25 years, procrastination, see? Now, whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not, or whether we're aware of it or not, because we may have deceived ourselves. I want to tell you something. When my name is heard and your name is heard, there's something associated with that. And that, most generally, ladies and gentlemen, will be your passion. What really drives you? Then the fourth one is patience. Patience is the ability to see God's timing and everything. It's called long-suffering in the Bible. And, of course, that's where we need to get. Those four things, perspective, purpose, passion, and patience. Those are the four key ingredients to never losing your focus if you understand how to put those things into your life. Now, verse 17 says this, And if children, then heirs. Now, that, that, and if children is through the first adoption we saw in 15 and 16. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so, be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, that's that your second adoption, you see. Now, as I said, I don't know how to preach this today. And I've never had a problem preaching anything in my life, but I, I feel such an injustice uh, of trying to preach something like this with all of what it has. And I, I struggle with this thing all weeks. So and I, you know, when I, and I, I tell you guys all the time, the best witness you can have when you want to get something across about God is not to sit down and tell somebody what God will do for them, but in reality, sit down and tell them what God has done for you. Anybody can sit down and say, God will do this for you. Very few people can sit down and relate through the situation that a person's in and let, say, let me show you what God's done for me. And I think that's the approach I want to take today. I want to put a context to this, and I really don't know how else to explain it. Zach was asking me about one of the books he was reading back here about a, 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 a famous preacher's life and his journeys, and all that God did with him. And it's a great book, and it, it shows all the ins and outs of that. And he read it, and he come up to me, and he said, I can't, wait to re- I, can't, I can't wait to read your book. Well, my book will be a lot more boring than his, I guarantee you. But that's basically what I want to talk to you about today. The only way I know how to convey to you these four things about perspective, about purpose, about passion, and about patience, is to show you where I've come from and how these verses have, have been there in my life to keep me on focus. Not that I've always been on focus. Not that I would even pretend to tell you that, that uh, but, but, but I'm telling you. That's the only way to know how to do it. You know, early in my life, when I had just gotten saved, I asked the same question that probably most of you asked. There's really no difference between me and you. I know, I know, I'm up here preaching and, you know, and I solve everybody's problems and I teach the Bible on Thursday night and any question you want to ask about the Bible, yeah, I know. But get past that facade. At the end of the day, the bottom line is that I am no different than you are. Whatever I have, wherever I'm at in my life, good or bad, it, it, it didn't come easy to me. I am, I am, I, you, many of you, if not most of you, are smarter than I am when it comes to just things in life. I mean, I, you know, I just, I'm just, I was not good, very good in school. I, I you know what? I don't know what to tell you. I, I don't, now. If you're here and you're a young teenager and you're elbowing your mom right now because you just got five Fs on your report card, you know, and uh, <coughs> that I, that was that's not, not a role model for you to follow. Say, not a role model for you to follow. So don't come home with Fs. But anyway, but that's you know. But I remember asking myself, <coughs> there must be more to life than this. There has to be more to life <coughs> than being like a little rat in a cage that just, like those little hamsters that just run the wheel and goes all day long. Or you're in there and you're going through the maze and there's cheese at the end and for us the cheese is going to heaven. There's got to be more than life. There's got to be more purpose to it. I've found over the years that <coughs> I've dealt with many people with many kinds of problems. I don't think I've dealt with a new problem for probably 10, 15 years. But I did find this out. People, whether they're saved or whether they're lost, they only have problems for two reasons. There's never a third. And whether they're saved or whether they're lost, (coughs) they will have issues in their life because of one of two reasons. And it's a basic counseling principle that you have in the back of your head that whenever you begin to work with somebody, you know that one or the other, this is what you're dealing with. It may take a week, a month, six months, a year to figure out which one it is, but I guarantee you it'll never be a third one. It'll be one thing, or it'll be this. You know, this is the type of year, depression, I guess, probably, and, and anxiety and all that stuff that comes uh, with, uh, with it, you know. Uh, I see so many people caught up in that today. I see so many people that are just, they're, they're depressed. And when you get depressed, you're asking the question and you don't have the answers. What's life all about? A depressed person is someone, no matter matter what age they are, and it's tragic when they're really young, but when you get into your 20s and your 30s and your 40s and the 50s, we used to call it in my day going up, midlife crisis. We don't have midlife crisis anymore because the crisis has come way before you get to midlife today. In my day, it was midlife. You got till midlife and then you had a breakdown, but you know what? Now today, the breakdowns come when you're 12, 14, 20, (laughs) midlife crisis, you never hear it anymore. But in my day, man and the women come up and they had midlife crisis, you know. And, you know, that's where, you know, the guy would leave his wife. You know, they've been married 35 years, you know, and he's, he's you know, 45 or 50. And, you know, and he's, he, so now he goes out and finds a 20-year-old, you know, and he goes back to his childhood. He gets a sports car, you know, and he, he tries to look like he's 20 again, you know, and he's not, <laughs> you know. And he makes an absolute fool out of himself. I, mean, I don't want to tell you. say, But why is that? I'll tell you why. Why do people get depressed? Well, if you're a saved person and you're here this morning and you're depressed, you can leave your $200 check in the thing out there. The doctor is now in. Let me tell you why you get depressed. You're depressed because of the fact that you're God's creation. You may not be saved. You're not even God's child. But you are God's creation. And God created you with a purpose in mind. And you will never be happy You'll never be happy. (coughs) You will never be happy as God's creation until you figure out what that is. Now, what you've done, what you've done is you've been deceived. Very early on, the devil deceived you when you were in high school, when you took your first marijuana cigarette, or you took your first beer, or you went to your first party, or you had your first sexual encounter. The world told you and the devil deceived you that that was going to fulfill you in life. That that's what a real adult does. That's what a real man does. That's what a real woman does. And you, you fell right into it. You fell right into it. And then when you got in there and you started to dope and you started to booze and you started the cigarette and you started the language and everything that goes wrong with you, you come to the realization that that didn't satisfy you either. So then you got a double deception because now the world and the devil told you, oh, well, you got to move from marijuana to crack cocaine. You got to go from this to heroin. You got to go from beer. To, you know what? The bigger the party, the more buzz the deception is, the more you'll be satisfied. You know why you're depressed right now if you're an unsafe person and your life is a, is a cesspool in a dead-end street? I'll tell you what. And maybe you're 20, maybe you're 30. I don't know. But I'll tell you this, the reason why depression has come into your life is because of the fact that you are looking for something that satisfies. And the only thing that can satisfy you is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will satisfy you. Now, you have been deceived because you have been deceived into believing that all the other stuff that you get into will deceive you. In reality, the deception is, those things that will not fulfill you, they will only kill you. They will only take from you whatever joy life has for you. They will take from you everything and destroy everything in your life and leave you busted and broke. That if you make it to 50, if you make it through 60, if you make it, you'll be absolutely empty, absolutely busted, absolutely broken. When you can't boogie anymore, nobody's going to even look at you a second time. Thank you. (laughs) You know what the problem is? You've been deceived. And you have been looking all your life for something that will satisfy you because deep down inside, God created you to fulfill something for him. And until you plug it in and beget the satisfaction that your sins are forgiven and you got something you can do with your life, you're not going anywhere. And your deception will carry on and carry on and carry on. And by the time you get to the place, i got to tell you this. There comes a point in your life where that process becomes irreversible. You can't turn it around. It's got you. You don't have it. You are completely out of control. This is why many of you who work with me have worked with people that were on alcohol, they were on drugs, and they come for a while, and they hang out for a while, and they try to get it for a while, but they never get it. You know why? Because the deception has rooted down too deep. They've got uh, complete control of where they're at. And they ain't changing anything. So an unsaved person gets depressed because of the fact the reality is beginning to set in, they're going to spend an eternity in a lake of fire. What a party that will be. And everything you thought this world had to offer that would make you feel good, give you what you wanted, some of you it was a career to make more money. You thought if you bought more things, you'd feel better about yourself. Some of you, it was a big house. You thought if you built a big house and laid it out the way you wanted it, I got everything, and then you know what? You walk through that big house, you walk through that whole thing, and you just look at it and you say to yourself, what is all this for? I was over a guy's place a couple of weeks ago, He's a friend of mine, unsaved guy. He just built a house. This house had to cost $2 million. It's 6,000 square feet. Now, that's a big house. I don't know how big 6,000 square feet is, but I know my house is only 20 square feet, so it's a lot bigger than mine. <laughs> this guy's lost. Now, the hard, and I was going over because we are, we, we are collectors. We, we collect mutual World War II memorabilia, and he's got a whale of a collection. And he's a nice guy, but he's lost. Wants nothing to do with God. And I walked through there, and, I and, and you know, it's the first time I've been to his place, and, you know, he wants to show me. The hardest thing for me to do, honest to God, I can fake a lot of things. I've been faking being a preacher for 30 years, and I've got away with it. I can fake a lot. You know what I can't fake? I can't fake getting excited about something when I think this is the dumbest thing in the world. He's got to walk me through. I, I, watched, I said to myself, I wish Bubba was here. Baba, you should have saw this whole floor was tiled. It looked like the Taj Mahal. Walk in, tiki wood stuff. Walk me through every room. There was more rooms in this place than I, I'm glad he was with me. I'd have never got out for two weeks trying to find my way out. He showed me every bathroom. They had 12 bathrooms in his house. Now, unless you've got a real weak kidney problem, you've got to always be near a bathroom. <laughs> What in the world do you need 12 bathrooms for? I don't know about you. I only use one at a time. <laughs> and I thought to myself when I left and I drove out of that big spiraling driveway to work its way down past this private lake. You know what? That's as close to heaven as that guy will ever get. Because in that house, There's everything that he thinks is going to make them happy. And yet he is one of the most miserable guys that you ever met in your life. He's never happy about anything. Now, you take a saved person, you know why you get depressed? I'll tell you why. You and I get depressed because once you got saved, God definitely has a plan for your life. And the problem is when you lose your focus, you do the same thing the unsaved person does. You think things are going to fix your problem. You think relationships are going to fix this. You think doing all this is going to do this. You think getting all this and being here and going that. And many times, that's why you get deceived and go back to the world. You try to have a foot in both worlds, you see. And that doesn't work either. And the reason why a man or a woman gets depressed, whether they're saved or whether they're lost, is because they have never figured out that you're God's creation. And if you're saved, you're God's child. And you will never be fulfilled as God's child. Remember I told you a couple of weeks ago, the mark of a successful man or a woman that's a saved person is simply somebody who finds what God wants them to do with their life and then does it. Hey, that unsaved man over there, boy, in his big million-dollar home with all he's got with his 6,000 square feet and his 48 bathrooms, he had an outside deck that was aerial up there, and on the outside deck he had two fireplaces. And yet, I can tell you right now, I know, I know men and women that are saved, love God, that are on the mission field, that are living in bamboo huts, that are happier than He is. You know why? Because then isn't about what we have, folks. That's why you get depressed. That's why I get depressed. The hardest thing in the world is keeping our focus. And I remember as a young man, I asked myself, there must be more to life than this, And God began to work in my own life, and God began to deal with me. You know, one of the first verses He gave me is found in Ephesians chapter 2. Because as a young man, I was much like many of you. And I wanted to do what God wanted me to do. I didn't have any idea what that was, but I knew that God had something that He wanted me to accomplish, and I so desperately wanted to do it. And I'd walk around and I'd see people who had a better handle on the Bible than I did. People who were involved in ministry and how happy they were, how God would use them. And here I am, somebody that just got into it and just got saved and just got to the point in my life. And I'm saying to myself, I really want that. But how do you get that? There's got to be more to this. There's got to be more than just going to work every day and coming home. There's got to be more than just having kids and raising kids. There's got to be more than, than just fixing the house and getting what you want and this or that and the car breaks down or this crap or that. Well, you got to paint the house. You're, my God, there's got to be more to life than just that. And God gave me this verse. When I began, this verse started it all for me. Because this verse, when God gave me, began to answer this question for me that led me to where I'm at today in my own personal relationship with God. And that's why I say, this message has to be about me, because I can't speak for you. I can't. I can only testify to me. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5, 6, and 7, it says this, talking about God here, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, God has, together with Christ by grace so you're saved, (coughs) and and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 7. That in the ages to come. Oh, I love this verse. That in the ages to come, we sing the old song, And when the ages roll, I'll still be praising Him. It's built on that verse right there. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceedingly riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You know what? That verse began to show me that God had a purpose. That verse began to open up the door that God not only had a purpose, that God had a plan. And when I began to read that and see what God had did, I began to see God's passion for what He wanted. And I told God, God, that's a great verse. That shows me you got a purpose. That shows me you got a plan. That shows me that you got passionate about it. Lord, what I need is your perspective on it. Wasn't very long after that, I went to a Thursday night Bible study, just like we have here. And I've told you this before. <coughs> I went there for five and a half, maybe six years. <coughs> I don't think I ever asked a question in six years I was there. Now, I didn't say that so you won't ask any questions because if you don't ask a question, we go home early. But I, but, but I wanted to learn. Here was my goal. I knew nothing, so I felt like it was, I could learn from everybody else. My goal was this. I went there on Thursday night, just like our night, and I sat down there, and every question somebody asked, I detailed out. We didn't have tapes back then. This was right after George Washington crossed the Delaware. They didn't have electronic stuff like we got today, your little iPods and your EPods and your, you know, your blueberries and all that stuff that go along. They didn't have any of that stuff But I had to do it by hand, and I sat down there, and I wrote this thing down, and I put this thing down. My goal was this. By next Thursday night, when I went back to that Bible study, if somebody would have asked the same question, I could have raised my hand and stood up and taught it. I wanted to learn. (coughs) And one night, somebody asked a question. And, oh, it was exactly what I needed after God gave me Ephesians. I don't remember what the question was exactly, but I do remember what the answers were. And I can still see old Sabacc up there with his shirt sleeves rolled up, with his big old ugly tattoos that he got in the Marine Corps on his thing up there, prowling out, raving back and forth, talking about it. You know what he taught that night? I came away with a great piece of the puzzle. God has a threefold plan. I remember that night like it was last week. The first thing that old boy said, he says, God has three plans. And if you ever are going to understand what God wants to do with you, you've got to understand these three plans. Because these three plans are like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Remember the other night at at New Year's Eve when I showed you how that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they were all the same, they were all one, but they had three different workings. That's what these plans are. And he, he went through it very briefly, but it was enough to whet my appetite. The first thing he says that, ladies and gentlemen, God has a plan for the universe. And he gave Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Now, at that time of my life, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 might as well be on the backside of the moon as far as me understanding it. But I wrote it down. Then he says, now the second part of that plan, the second plan is God has a plan for the earth. And he gave me Isaiah chapter uh, 45, verse 18, that night. And then the third plan that God has, or the third part of the plan, <clears throat> is that God has a plan for your life. Here's what He said. Now, you've got to learn those three because God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for the earth. Now, if you ain't figured it out yet, you live on planet earth. So you've got to figure out God's plan for your life. You've got to figure out why God created the earth. Now, if you haven't figured it out one step further, this earth is in the universe. So They're all separate, but they're all connected. God has a plan for your life on earth that's going to run right into the second heaven into the universe. Boy, I got that thing. I went home. That one took me about three weeks to get down. He gave me Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. What a tremendous passage that opened up that door. I later connected it with Revelation chapter 22 and Isaiah chapter 66 and 20 other passages. And I came away at a time in my life at some point that I began to grasp that God, there is more to all this. In my life, God had me, an an infinite nobody, that the God of the universe had a plan for me in this universe. And then I read Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18. I began to understand God's plan for the earth, (coughs) In fact, it wasn't just Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18. It was a whole chapter of Isaiah chapter 45. Then I fell into Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48. Then I got into the book of Revelation, and I saw Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and I realized that God now had a plan for the earth, and that earth is in the universe. Oh, then someplace along the line, I grabbed that that third concept, and I saw that God had a plan for my life. And that plan is going to wind up someday in the universe, on this earth, with me being a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself because I'm doing really good. But but let me ask you a question. What on earth? What do you got going right now? What do you got in your life right now? What are you in the process of doing right now that is better than that? Uh, those are questions I had to ask myself. I'm not preaching this to you. I'm telling you where I came from. God gave me John chapter 14 verse 12. John he gave me Romans chapter 12, verse one and two. He gave me John chapter 16 that I gave to you that night at, uh, on, on New Year's Eve about the uh, seven uh, Holy Spirit of God, seven things that he does, his work. And I began to realize when I saw that God had a plan. Now, now let me just come back forward here. Just Let me fast forward just a second. Now, to me personally, and I'm not speaking to you. I'm not even preaching to you. I'm telling you where I'm coming from. To me personally, there's no greater, higher, nobler calling than to be in the ministry. Now, I'm not talking about pastoring. Pastoring is, is, is an office. Though I believe that there's no higher office in this world, or the universe, or in my life, or on planet Earth, than the office of a pastor. You say, what do you mean about the president? President's office of the presidency cannot compare with the offer of a pastor. The president can can do a lot of things, but he does not have the ability to change somebody's eternal destiny. He may be able to stop wars, start wars, feed people, give out disproducing checks, and give out food and all kinds of things, but he cannot change the destiny spiritually in eternity with anything he touches. No, no, no. There's a higher office than that. And it's the office of being a pastor. But there's no nobler calling to me than the ministry. Nothing at all. Nothing of greater value. Nothing that, uh, that, uh, nothing that can ever compare with it that a man that gets God's perspective, then he gets God's purpose, then he gets God's passion. He understands he has to have patience. It doesn't come overnight. And off he goes. You know, my life as a person, I'm really not very complicated to figure out. Now, sometimes I can fake being complicated when I need to in a situation, to pull myself off, to, to somebody's trying to whack me. But in everyday life, you that know me, I'm not a very complicated person. I'm really just like you. I, 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 I just, you know what, I, 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 the only thing different about me than maybe some of you, the only thing different about me than most Christians you'll find is just one little thing. And it's not a big thing. <clears throat> I got saved in 1972. Nineteen seventy two I gave my life to Christ. And you know what? I never got over it. I never got over it. In my mind, with all the people that I've worked with, you'd think I'd have it all worked out, wouldn't you? You'd think after all these years dealing with people and problems that I could answer every day. You know one thing I don't understand? And there's no reflection on anybody here, I'm talking about me. But you know what one thing I don't understand dealing with God's people all my life. I don't understand how a person gets saved and then get over it. How do you have a transforming day in your life that alters your eternity, that is now a time when your focus is completely changed and you get God's perspective, you get God's purpose, you get God's passion, and then you get God's patience? How in the world do you come to that point in your life and lose what you had? I, 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 for the life, I can want me to explain eternity to you want me to tell you what you're going to be doing out in eternity 16 million years from tonight I can pretty much do it you want me to know what galaxy you're going to be in I can pretty much tell you you want me to know want me to tell you uh, where the lake of fire is going to be I can probably give you a good idea now you want me to talk to you about the 12 manners of life and a two year life up there and why there's 12 I can probably do that you want me to line them up to the 12 nations of Israel I can probably do that I can do a lot of things but I do not and I have never found out how a man or a woman gets saved and then gets over it that's what's wrong with me see I never could get over it No, I'm far from perfect and if you followed around me for a day you'd probably want another pastor next week and I followed you around next week I'd ask you to go somewhere else I'm just like you you struggle, I struggle. You sin, I sin. You make boneheaded choices, I make a lot of boneheaded choices. But I've never gotten over the day I got saved. I, there's never been a day in my life that I ever regretted it. <coughs> there hasn't been a day in my life that I ever lost my focus in, in all that's going on. And I just attribute it to no, I, I'm not a great Christian. I'm really not. I'm really not a great Christian. I've met people who are much greater Christians than me. I know people right now that I envy to have the relationship with God that they have. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not some superhero up here that that never has the problem. or, or I struggle with the exact same pressures, the problems, the heartaches, the disappointments that you do. It's just the fact that when I got saved in 1972... You got over yours, I never got over mine. When I'm dead and gone, and you want to put a nice epitaph on my tombstone, you can just say, Bob Alexander, born 1950, died whenever I die, and this underneath that, put a thing, got saved in 1972, he never got over it. I'll be happy with that. You ever like going to, two, I like going to graveyards. Why do we have an attraction to graveyards? Because we're all going there someday, that's Why? Now, you can say, I'd like to go to Hawaii, but I'll never get there. You can say, I'd like to go to Paris, France, but I'll never get there. Well, you're going to the graveyard, so you might as well enjoy it. (laughs) I like the little things they say on them. There's some great testimonies. I like it now that they do. A lot of times they put pictures onto people so you can put a face with the person in the ground. That may sound morbid, but I mean, sometimes I've sat there and it was a young person and I wept. It was an, an older couple and they'd been together through life and I was happy. You know, I mean, I read them and I went in and say, you know what? In heaven with the Lord, in the arms of Jesus. I saw one one time I didn't care for. It really bothered me. The husband had died. The wife was still alive. And she had wrote on there to follow you. I'm not content because I'm not sure which way you went. <laughs> 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 That's a true statement. I can take you there and show you that group, that tombstone today. I've often hoped that guy was a saved man because he'll have more rewards in heaven of me using that in my sermon and people getting right with God than he probably ever accomplished in life. I'm not very complicated, folks. I got saved in 1972. And through that process, God showed me there's more to life on planet Earth than what many of God's people think there is. I only have one perspective in life, it's ministry. I only have one purpose in life, that's for this church to enact God's plan. I only have one passion in my life, and it's people. But I understand to do all that, you have to have patience, because it doesn't take, it doesn't happen in time. But I'm not very complicated. My ministry is even less complicated. I'm not a very hard person. I, I try to be open. I try to be what you see is what you get. You've heard me say this many, many times, and it's kind of a joke around here, but it's true. When people meet me, they either love me or they hate me. I have never met anybody in my life when they first heard me preach that they went away and they said, well, I kind of, they either said, that was the greatest thing I ever heard in my life, or I ain't ever going back, that guy's nuts. (laughs) I mean, that's just the way it is. You know what? I like that. To me, and that's, that's just I like a kind of ministry, or I want to have the kind of ministry that, that when a pe- person hears me, they get one end or the other. I don't want to be somebody who, when you're done hearing me, you say, "I wonder where he really stands." <laughs> I want you to know where I'm at when you leave, because there's too much deception going on in this world. I, I don't have any middle ground. I've met people that, very frankly, that when I first met them, they first came to hear me preach, or you invited them when they came to Bible study, they hated me. But through the process of time, they got saved, and now they love me. Now, at the same time, I have ones who started out loving me <laughs> and now hate me. <laughs> Life's a cycle, man. Boom, boom, it's right off. It's a cycle. That's the way it goes. I have one goal in everything I do. You see, I can't, I, see how, why I couldn't preach this? I can't preach that to you. I got I to put it through my eyes where I've been. And hopefully some of you will maybe pick up on it. I'm not here to, 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 conf, to try to make you do anything. I'm just trying to here show you where I've come from and what, what I had to struggle through just like some of you right now are struggling through. I have one goal in everything I do. It's the work of the ministry and taking the people that God give me and perfecting the change for the work of the ministry on whatever level they're at. We do a lot of things around here. To me, when we play softball, when we play volleyball, when we have our great Memorial Day picnic, when we do stuff for the little kid, whether it's an Easter egg hunt or maybe like our Halloween party, You see, you look at that and you see that, and then on Thursday night we have Bible study, we have Sunday morning, we had our New Year's Eve deal where we went through that, we have our Bible institute. Some of you actually look at those two categories like they're two different things. To me, they're one and the same. I don't put any less intensity in the Halloween party or softball or this. To me, it's all a means to an end, and that is to reach people. But because we don't have a pulpit, because we don't meet here, because it's not some kind of formalized program, and we have fun and we do things, when you don't have the right focus and the perception, you see those things as, oh, we're just going to have a good time. Not in my world. I see those things as just as important as what we're doing this morning or what we're doing on Thursday night or what we do in Bible Institute. Because I see everything through the eyes of the perception that that's all a means to an end, to reach people. It all it is. And this, this was the process. I didn't, I didn't wake up one morning after I'd been saved two years, three years, you know, and you'd, God's got, his, got your name on a big chart up there in the sky on a big clipboard, and he looks up there in this nighttime in Canton, Ohio, and God says, well, yeah, it looks like Bob Alexander's up for his dose of spirituality, and i been saved now two, three years. Done a pretty good job. A couple little glitches here, but you know what? He's an idiot. What are we going to do with him? Got to love him. You know, part of his charm. And he looked at that thing, you know, and he says, okay, tonight's his night. He'd been saved now three years. Working hard at it. All right, Gabriel, back up the big old spiritual dump truck that's got all the wisdom of God in it. Roll back, angels, roll back the roof of his house. Here it comes, Bob. Here comes wisdom and knowledge and all the ability and your preaching ability and all of this and all of that. And Here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. Then you wake up the next morning. And, here I come to save the day. You know that mighty mouth is on the way. So, No, it didn't work that way. It was a process for me like it's a process for you. You won't wake up and become spiritual any more than I did. You never will. You never will. There's a process for you like there was a process for me. And I realize that building a church is a process that you take the people that God gives you. And in my ministry... My ministry is as simple as my life. It's basically a two-fold ministry. Just as my life is very simple, so is my ministry. My ministry is looking at people in two stages. Now, in, in the first stage, you may be at a number of little levels. But it, it, to me, it's real simple. I look at you here today, and you're, in one, you're either in stage one or stage two. And my job as pastor is to getting people to see and understand the great concept of Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. That someday, you're going to stand before the assembled universe. And God has a plan. And that plan is going to be enacted in your life and my life that that he's He's going to glorify us with Him as a joint heir of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you. I wouldn't trade that for whatever you got or what I got in my world right now. There ain't nothing compared with that. Not a thing. I take you young Christians, and I, my goal, very honestly, is to help you get to the place where you're profitable for freeing the ministry. Do you think I'm really spending time discipling you? I told somebody this week, I'm, I'm taking, this year I got a goal, outside of everything else I'm doing, and I'm going to try to do it the best I can. I got a goal where I'm going to take, I'm going to take, uh, uh, take 12 people, six, the first six months, six, the second six months. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to meet with them and I'm going to give them everything. I'm gonna, I, I know where they're at. I know they're right there on the edge. I want to get them and I want to spend six months getting them to the place where they get where they're at with exactly what they need. They're, together, them and I are going to sit down and target what they need to get them into this thing where it's going. You know why? Because my goal for every one of you is to get you to the place where you become profitable in this ministry. I mean, you sit around for a while and don't do stuff for a while, but you know what? After a while, doesn't it bother you a little bit when people that have been here less than you are passing you over and doing things that you ought to be doing? You see, you may want grass to grow under your feet. I don't want any grass to grow under my feet. You know why? I understand my perspective. I don't want to stand here with Him before the assembled universe and not have understood what His plan was for my life. I can't speak for you. I'm speaking for me. I'll show you another verse God gave me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 12. You see, I'm building this thing. I'm showing you how I got as messed up as I am today. And messed up is the right word. You think I'm screwed up? I'm going to show you one of the most screwed up guys the world has ever seen in just a few moments. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 12. It says, "Howbeit, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that are come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, here it comes. But as it is written, I hath not seen." Nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things. There's the witness of the Spirit. Here comes your Bible. Yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Look at verse 12. Here it comes, right in Romans chapter 8 where we're at. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, that's the spirit of bondage, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us under God. Now that's my goal for you. That's my goal for me. As a pastor, that should be the only goal a pastor has is taking people who want to learn and people who want to grasp it and people who want to get it and get it into their life you know, it's a process. I remember when I first came to Kansas City. Some of you older people that have been around in churches for a while. John, I know you'll, you'll remember this. And, and uh, Steve Bracken, Sr., I know you'll remember it. I've uh, been around in churches. And, you know, remember the, and, oh, and Shanko, you'll remember. Remember the, remember the either Tuesday night, Wednesday night, or Thursday night visitation programs? I grew up in that kind of ridiculous mindset that every Thursday night or every Tuesday night, whatever night that church picked, you all met for, to church for supper. And then what you did after supper, you probably have been in there too, after supper, they divided up all the cards of two classes, people who were visitors and people who just haven't come for a long time. And then your job <coughs> was to pair up two by two, have a little spiritual pep rally, and then go out and go to those people's homes. Now, this was back in the 70s and the 80s when you could kind of, it didn't work back then. But the difference between then and now, you go to somebody's home at 8 o'clock at night tonight and knock on the door, you're going to get shot, probably. <laughs> I have been in situations where I went into people's homes. <clears throat> it's been a process for me, too, folks. I made some of the biggest stupid mistakes of a young pastor you could ever make in your life, and they were, they were fine. I tell you, I don't care what mistakes you make as long as you learn from them. And boy, I made them. I'd go in there and sit down with some guy that visited a church Three or four months ago, or somebody you know, we used to have special days back then. Friend day, remember Friend day? I could not get anybody to come on Friend day, but boy, I had busloads on Enemy day. They just wanted to come, you know. We had Heaven Sunday, remember that? Heaven Sunday, remember Heaven Sunday? I always thought well, let's have a Hell Sunday, but nobody wanted to come to that either. So we had guys that came to came to Friend day, you know, and and have been back for three or four months, and so our job is to go in and you know have a visitation with him, invite him back. I've been in homes where I went in and it was so obvious that the guy didn't want me there. I've been in places where the guy is watching TV and I have interrupted his ball game and he, I'm talking to him and he, I'm saying, well, we sure had to come here to come back and he's just watching TV. I'm sitting over here. He's not even looking at me. Or he looks here and he's looking there and he's looking here and looking at yeah, mm-hmm. you what know, I, I remember one time I went into a place and I said, and I was visiting for the kids and the dad was there and the kids were right there and the dad was so indignant that I was there. <laughs> And I said to him, I said, sir, can I just talk to your kid for a minute? He said, sure, go ahead. And I said, could we turn the TV down just for, just for a few minutes? And I talk with him. He says, yeah, sure. We reached over and turned it up. I come to the conclusion, one of the greatest lessons in my life, God taught me the hard way. It was a Saturday morning. It was just like February or January, only a lot of snow on the ground, and it had started to melt, and it was really slushy and really messy. And on Saturday morning, we as pastors were required to go out and, you know, you you beat the bushes for them. And I fought into that mindset even though I didn't like it. I bought into it, you know, and I was just like everybody else. I'd go out and fill my quota. Nobody ever came. Nobody ever got saved. Nobody ever wanted to talk to you. And you would kid yourself, deceive yourself. I'd go back and I'd say, well, I really didn't do well today and I didn't get to talk to anybody. But God will bless my efforts. I was down on... Uh, uh, 18th and Topping visiting some bus kids. Went up to the house on a Saturday morning about 10 o'clock. Real messy, slushy, just a mess. And went up to the house, went into the house and I said, hey, I said, uh, knocked on the door, I said, I'm Bob Alexander uh, from the church down here and I just like to come and be slam! Slam the door right in my face. So I turn around and walked down the steps, martyr image, you know, and I was thinking to myself, well, God will bless my, and right that time, I stepped off the curb, and I hit a piece of ice, now, I got to remember, I had a, three back then, you had a three-piece suit on, I looked good, (laughs) three-piece suit, had a a nice new overcoat on, I slipped on a piece of ice, I I kid you, my leg went right up, almost even with the world, and I, right down in that thing. I mean, in a mud hole. I mean, icy, slushy mud. And I'm laying there, choking wet. The guy opened, must have been watching. He opens the door and he says, you all right? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm laying there. Just as if it was an audible voice with God standing over my presence. I heard God say to me with a sarcastic shrill in his voice, you think I'm still going to bless your efforts now? He says, you know what, Bob? You're a good kid, but you're pretty stupid. You know what you're doing? You're wasting my time. You're running around here chasing people who really don't want to get caught. You know what, Bob? I've given you a Sunday school class of about four or 500 people. Why don't you do this? Next Sunday, or tomorrow, why don't you get up and say this? Next Saturday morning, I'm going to teach a class for anybody here that really wants to get a better relationship with God through a systematic study of the Bible. I'm going to start at 9 o'clock. If you want to come, you'll be here. Try that. I did. The next Saturday morning at 9 o'clock, there was 225 people in that room. You know what God said to me then? Bob, let me ask you a question. In the ministry, which would you rather do? Would you rather chase your whole life of people who don't want to get caught? Do you want to talk to people that don't want to hear what you've got to say? You've got 225 people here that want to hear what you've got to say. Why in the world are they suffering because of you're so stupid? Forget them. Go with what? Yeah, you know what the lesson God taught me out of that? One of the greatest lessons, and I use it with you guys all the time. You know what it not taught me? Because in the ministry, you can get discouraged. In the ministry, people bail on it. In the ministry, people come and go. You you know what I've learned? And if you don't keep your focus, you know what I've learned? Never focus in the ministry on what you don't have. Always focus on what you do have. God taught me out of that. I never went out on Saturday again. That 225 people developed into a Bible institute about six months down the line. And I came to the point in my life when, I, when God taught me one of the greatest lessons. It's a process for me. And that lesson was, I had people here that wanted to learn and wanted to see it. And wanted to learn. Why am I busy chasing everybody out here that doesn't want to hear it? I've got people here that want to learn God's perspective. They want to get God's purpose. They want to get God's passion. They want to get God's patience. What in the world am I doing chasing people who could give a flip about what God has to say? Now, how do you get to that point in your life? It's a process. I think the greatest example of it in the Bible, very clearly, is probably one of the greatest examples outside the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the Apostle Paul. I don't know of a man in all of the Bible outside the Lord Jesus Christ who had the perspective, who had the passion, who had the purpose, and had the patience. For the ministry and never 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 one time i find a couple times where he loses his perspective but he never loses his he never loses his focus you know why that is i'll tell you why that is god had a tough job for him to do bringing him out of the old testament going into the new testament god had a tough job for him to accomplish god did something with him that he never did with anybody else in the bible you know what he did over there in first corinthians chapter 12 he took him up into heaven Pulled him right off the street, took him up into heaven. Bible says he showed him the things up there that no man had ever seen. I don't know how long he was there, but he got an eye full. God showed him his plan, God showed him his perspective, God showed him his purpose. God gave him then the patience. And you know what he did? He put him back down on this earth after he had seen the taste of glory of God and understood it and then shut him loose on this planet. He never lived his life ever again once he'd seen the Lord of glory, once he'd seen what God had for him, once his perspective was clear, once his purpose was clear, once the passion was in him. He was never, never the same man again. You know what? Every one of us ought to have that because we can have the same experience he had out of this book right here. There's no reason for me to be like everybody else. I can't speak to you, but there's no reason for you to be like anybody else. There's no reason at all. We have everything that we need. You see, my overall goal is to get you to the place biblically where you can handle a piece of this ministry before the Lord comes back. Now, I told you my ministry is very simple, like me, very uncomplex. You either love me or hate me. And some people love to hate me. But it's one way or the other. But in my ministry, it's the same way. There's only two parts to this. If you're here and you're a young Christian, you have all the grace you need. You don't ever have to be afraid of making a mistake with me in this this time frame. You have all the time you need. We'll handle every issue you got. You have my undivided attention. My tolerance and my patience are unending. We will work at it as long as it takes. I can't think, there's only in my whole life, very few exceptions to that. If you're a young Christian in here, my goal is to get you ready to handle a part of this ministry before Christ comes back. But I don't put any timetable on that. I'll never say to you, if you don't have this thing down in two two or three years, uh, you're in trouble. Never say that to you everybody's different, we'll work at your speed. I mean, uh, it, it doesn't matter to me as long as you're honest with me and as long as you're trying to do what's right and as long as you're there and I can help you, I don't care how long it takes. I know that in time, you'll get there. That's the first part of the aspect of this ministry. Real simple. But now when you get to the second aspect of it, it all changes. The moment you come to me, which you will, if the process happens the way it does, the moment you come to me and you say, Bob, I want part of your ministry. God has spoken to my heart. I want to pick up the mantle with you. I want to help you. I want to do this for you. I want to do this with you. I want to learn this. I want to do that. I want this to do. I want that to do. Hey, I think that is the greatest thing in the world. and, And truthfully, that's what this ministry is geared for. But the difference between the first section and the second section is simply this. To whom much is given, much is required. When you enter into that section, I'm a different person for the younger ones. I have zero tolerance in the ministry. Absolutely zero. You can make mistakes as long as they're honest mistakes. You can blow something and say something wrong to somebody. I understand that. I'm not talking about that. But you ought to be in a situation now where you should stop causing problems and start helping solve them problems. You know, I, the older I get, the more I understand how Paul looked at John Mark. Remember John Mark? Remember in Acts chapter 13 when they went on their first missionary journey and John Mark went with them? And John Mark was a young guy, and, and evidently uh, he got to go with Paul to be Paul's helper in this thing. And Bible says in Acts chapter 15, verse 37, or down through the process of that, that uh, uh, while, they're, while they're out there and they're, and they're in the ministry and they're in the heat of it, you know what John Mark does? He bails out. He goes back to Mama. Goes back home. Now, the Bible doesn't say what the reason was. You know why? Because I don't care. I don't care what the reason was. I don't care what his reason was. Paul didn't care what his reason was. Paul had a perspective. Paul had a purpose. Paul had a passion. And here's a young guy that says, Whoa. "I mean, can you imagine the, the the notoriety it must have went along with? Oh, you're going on Paul's missionary trip. Oh, you know how many young men you know how many young men would like to have your spot." Yeah, I know, but I was the. There's only five guys on the list, and it was a short list, and I was number one. You know know how that brought along? You see, John Mark had the ability to go, he didn't have the ability to stay. When things got tough, he left Paul in a lurch. He bailed on him. And he left him there where he said, I'm going to do this. And then when they got come to the down of doing it, he said, I got to go home. I got a party to go to. I got a party to go to. I got friends coming over. I got a, well, my mommy says that she got a special cake for my birthday. Bailed on him. I understand. The next time in Acts chapter 15, we're going on their second missionary trip. John Mark says, I'd like to go again. Paul says, no way. Uh-uh, you're not going with me. You get one shot in the ministry with Paul. You know why? He had zero tolerance. Paul gave him something to do. He bailed out on him. Because, you know what? He probably thought, oh, this is not that important. In Paul's mind, everything was important. He looked at everything he did because he had a perspective. He had a purpose. He had a passion that John Mark didn't have. And John Mark got into the middle of it, and for whatever reason, he didn't want to do it. And he left Paul hanging. And next time he comes around, Paul says, he ain't going with me. Barnabas says, come on. He said to Barnabas, look, pal, I took that kid last time. He said he wanted part of my ministry. I gave him something to do. And you know what? I told him it had to be done on Saturday. He calls me on Thursday and says, I can't make it. Back to Mama. You see, that's the difference between the first section and the second section. In the first section, you can do anything you want to do. Once you take part of my ministry, you better take it with the same determination I take it. It's just that simple. But well, that's just me. But that was Paul. I'm telling you, Paul had zero tolerance, no nonsense. He had the four Ps down better than anybody I ever met in my Bible. He has a unique perspective because he'd been there. He'd seen it. He understood it. And in fact, I'm, i sure many, many times i thought he shot of the verse in Proverbs 25, 19 that I thought of. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. And yet when I said a broken tooth or a foot out of joint, remember in the Song of Solomon? Remember Thursday night on New Year's Eve? The teeth and the feet. Remember that? Mel Sabaka was my apostle. Everybody needs an apostle Paul in their life. Everybody does. My apostle Paul was Mel Sabaka. He's the apostle Paul of my life. I, if I treated you and traded some of you, and I know what you say. Oh, do, every time I say this, somebody comes up and says, yeah, you can do that to me. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Just like John Mark, I'm sure, said, I'll be with you till the end of the earth or till I get a better deal. If I trained some of you guys the way he trained his boys, you'll be over at First Baptist of Raytown next week. Let me tell you something. He was the Apostle Paul of my life. I saw a man that no nonsense ministry. I saw a man that everything in his life was one thing. He knew he was going to stand someday before the assembled universe and be a joint heir with Jesus Christ. He understood it. And there was nothing in his life. Absolutely nothing in his life that was going to shortcut that system. If you got in him with him, you get it by the book or you went someplace else. Credible. He didn't put up with anything. I've told you the story. I was preaching one time in front of four or five hundred people, and he was sitting right down the front. And I was preaching up there, and I was going to town, and I misquoted a verse. Right in the middle of 500 people in the front, and his voice did not need any microphone. He stood up, while I'm preaching, and he says to me, book, chapter, verse, just like that. And you talk about a turkey farm day after a Thanksgiving. Quiet. Quiet. I said, okay. I quoted it wrong in front of 500 people. You know what he said? He said, if you're going to be in my ministry and you're going to preach in my pulpit and you're going to preach the Word of God in my church, then, brother, you quote it correctly. Sat down. Now, what do you do in that situation i gave the invitation and i came forward that's what i did (laughs) that's what i that's what i felt like doing tell you what i learned my lesson you know what he was telling me look son you can have part of my ministry my whole goal is to get you ready to have part of my ministry but a young man if you're going to have part of my ministry, you better take it as seriously, whether it's a softball, volleyball, Halloween party, sunny morning preaching, Thursday night Bible study, you better get your perspective on it right or go someplace else. That's what he was saying. Can't do that today. John Reed would have so many lawsuits on the, on the church that he, he wouldn't be able to do anything. We've changed a lot. We've changed a lot. See, I don't think there's any difference on preaching on Sunday and setting up the ball fields on Saturday afternoon for the softball league. You know what a real leader is? Some of you will never get this. A real leader is the first one there and the last one to leave. A real leader is to realize that that a lot happens before the main event and a lot happens after the main event. But oh no, we like being a captain, don't we? Yes, we do. We like doing the devotions. And you do a good job. The only problem is it starts about an hour before and runs about three hours later when you're off with your friends and somebody else is doing the work of the ministry. I don't know what to tell you. It takes self-denial. It takes self-discipline. It takes self-control. It takes self-motivation. It takes balance. And it cakes the point that you never, 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 never lose your focus. If God would just give me 20 people in this church, 20, that would have their focus so set that whatever they say they're going to do, they're going to do, I'll tell you what, we could turn this town upside down. And I'm just telling you, it ain't ever going to happen. You and I lived after salvation for one thing, and that is to become a living sacrifice to finish what God has called us to do. And in time as I grew, and I understood these things, I understood another great truth, and I'm closing now. I understood another great truth, and it's found in verse 18. And he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In time, I came to the conclusion that not only is you are going to have to be self-disciplined, you're going to have to have the right perspective, you're going to have to have the right purpose, the right passion, and the right patience. But you're going to have to realize that if you're going to be in the ministry, there's a price you're going to pay. You ever read, you ever read the early part of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 there? You ever see the churches that are listed? you got a church by the name of Smyrnia. You know what Smyrnia means? It means bitterness and death. you got a church by the name Sardis. You know what Sardis means? It means red ones covered in blood. You know what Thyatira means? It means order of affliction. Now, the suffering that you're going to have to put up today, ladies and gentlemen, won't be in that nature. Somebody said one time, I heard a young guy get up there, well, this was another guy. It wasn't me, thankfully. I learned my lesson the first time. Another guy, another youth feel, back in Ohio. He's getting up and he's, he's, uh, he's preaching. And he's doing a good job, but not in Sabaka's mind. And he got up there and he, he got up there and made a statement. He was, he was kind of bloviating a little bit, you know, and putting it out there. And he got up there and he made a statement. And he really impacted it. I mean, he pounded the pulpit, you know, and he really, and he, he made the statement that he didn't care what happened. He said, I'm willing to die for Christ. And everybody went, amen. Tabaka stood right up in the front. He says, any idiot can die for him. Why don't you tell these people how to live for him? That's what's tough. He gave the invitation, and he came forward. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do if I did that to you down at the mission? Some of I'd be stopping every 30 seconds. <laughs> what would you do if you got in a situation like that, and I did that to you? You'd run home to Mama so fast, You'd be out of here sucking your thumb someplace. You know why? I'll tell you why. Nah, not all of you would. Not all of you would. I better shut up here. I'm getting, this is about me, not you. Suffer now, you reigned then. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Luke chapter 14, verse 28 says that we're to count the cost. You want to understand what it's going to take to serve God? God wants you to be a living sacrifice. You'll never understand sacrifice until you understand 2 Samuel 24, 24. You know what he says there? If You're going to sacrifice to God. It's going to cost you something. There's a price to pay for this. You know what the problem with some of you is? You want the glory of the ministry. You want the aspect of the ministry. You want the notoriety. Oh, you like walking around here like like you're, like you're in charge of something. But the problem is, the bottom line is, you're not willing to pay the price to really have that. Because it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you some friends. It may cost you your marriage. It may cost you some family. It may cost you your job. It may cost you your social status. You see, back then, they, it, was persec- it was persecution on things like the rack. To hear it's just ridicule. And a lot of people can stand the rack a lot better than they can stand ridicule. But that's what it's going to take. You stand for a book. You change your life where you get it into balance and you be and do what God wants you to do. There's a price that's going to come with that. One last verse, then I'm done. But you've got to have this one. Can't go home without this. This is like going out to eat someplace and then not getting dessert. Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verse 12. It's going to cost you something. I learned that in time. I don't want to say this wrong. God knows my heart. I don't want to say this in a boasting, prideful way. God knows my heart. I wish I could say it and lay it out, but I can't, so I never try to. But there's a few of you around here that know and understand that this church didn't happen the way we have here without somebody paying a price for it. Somebody paid a price for us to be here today. Most of you will never know. Some of you do know, but the bottom line is, it costs something for Old Path Baptist Church to be here. It's just that simple. You know why? Because anything worth sacrificing that does for God always costs something. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing His reproach. You see that thing? We're to bear the reproach of Christ every day of our life. Ah, look at verse 14. You don't want to miss this. Here's the reason. Here's your perspective. Here's your purpose. Here's your passion. And here's your patience. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. There it is. This thing means nothing to me. It's over there. Someday we're going to stand before all the assembled universe in our glorified bodies. Remember, I showed it to you in Song of Solomon that night. Remember, I showed you your private garden, where you and God are to go right now. But I showed you that thing over there in chapter seven and eight, where in eternity you and Him are walking down through your own personal Garden of Eden, and you're looking back and you're talking about all the defeats, all the struggles, all the heaviness, all the tragedy, all the things that so easily got us off track. And then you just come into that golden morning sun rise, brother, and you finally realize what he meant when he says, for I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Right perspective. Right purpose. Right passion. Right patience. All comes down to right focus. The ministry to me is people. I'm like the Marine Corps, always looking for a few good men and women. I look at things totally different than most people. I know that. When I look at a young man or a young lady, I see way beyond, maybe when they come in, what they're struggling with. I look at some of you that are here in this room today, and I know you're struggling with things as a young Christian, but yet I look beyond that. I see that deep down inside you that uh, it's all... All to get you off your focus. It's all to keep you from becoming what God really wants you to be. And I know if you can ever get the smoke and the mirrors out of the side and you can ever break through that thing and ever see this thing as it really is, like Paul did. Lord, well, when he came back, his whole thing was for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I'm always looking for people like that. My ministry and what I'm trying to do and what I'm looking for can be summed up in one story. And I'm done. Honest to goodness, I'm done when I say this. A long time ago, during the Vietnam War, the Marine Corps had a buddy system that if you enlisted with your friend, you could go in and go through boot camp together. Remember that, Jim? you go through boot camp together, and you'd be signed together, and you'd go, you could call called the buddy system. And back about 1965, 66 in there someplace, two young guys, lifelong friends, went into the Marine Corps together. They went through their basic at Paris Island together. They went through their AIT at Camp Lejeune together. And they both got put into the same rifle company and were sent to Vietnam, 211 Bravo, with their MOS designation. And uh, they went to Vietnam, and they were there for about four or five months. Of course, back then, a a year's duty was standard tour in Vietnam. And one night, they were out on an ambush patrol, which we did every night. You would go out, and you'd go out, and you'd set up an ambush in a boonie someplace, and you'd all hide down there on a trail, and you'd wait for the, the VC to come through, and then you'd set off your claymores and smoke them and kill as many of them you can and grab their weapons, get a body count, and try to get back for breakfast. Well, this night it didn't go according to plan. There was like 15 men on this ambush patrol, and they got out there, and uh, they got ambushed. And they got separated, and they got broke out, and 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 they tried to get back. And they had an assembly point, and that's what you always did. Whenever you went out at night, whenever you had an ambush or whatever you were doing, everybody knew that if it all hit the fan, you had a you had a you had a contact point that you made your way back to, and that's where you reassembled, and they either went back and tried to retake it, or you you headed home. Well, they went to the got back to the back to the uh, uh, assembly place, and. Uh, they all got there, and they were checking to see who was there, and it was still very hairy, ha- very hairy, VCR all around them, and they had to get back. There was no way, overwhelming force. Well, this young kid found out his buddy wasn't there, and uh, somebody said, I saw Tom get shot in the leg, and I said, I couldn't get back to get him. He says, he's cut off. And this young kid, without saying to anybody, left and ran back into that bush to find his brother. The sergeant couldn't lose any more men because, hey, standard operation procedure. I got one guy down, he's probably dead. I'm not going to lose two or three more guys to got somebody who's already dead. It's terrible. That's the way it goes in those situations. Well, this young man found his buddy and he was wounded in the leg, couldn't walk. Viet Cong had now cut them off. And the rest of the boys told the story and they, they heard they heard. They heard the gunfire. They could tell the difference between an M16, which the GIs carried, and the AK-47s, which was the, uh, or the CHICOMs, which is the, uh, the NVA carried, and they knew that a firefight was going on. They knew there was lots of AK-47s and, and grenades going off, and they could only hear two M16s being fired. There's no way they could get to them. They held their position. They called for an airstrike. It wasn't going to happen. They did everything in the world to plead to send more men out to go get these guys. It ain't going to happen. They were in the middle of an overrunning situation, and those two boys, nobody was going to help them. They heard the gunfire go off for, on for two or three hours, and then, it, as always in every battle, it grew very quiet. The guns were silent. Everybody in that little Marine force recon knew that those two boys were dead. As always in everything, when the VC did it, you know, they went in, they did their damage, and then they'd pull back over the border by morning. And in the morning, the Marines, they just were fitting to go. And they went out, and they they wanted to find where these boys were. And they found where they were. And the guy that told the story, it was one of the most moving stories I've ever heard in my life. These two boys who were together in life and together in death, the one boy that came back for his friend, was not going to leave him. You know what they did? They knew they were outnumbered, and they knew they were overwhelmed. And they knew that there was no way that they were ever going to get back. But that young man who could walk and could have got back was not going to leave his friend who could not go back. And to make sure that he didn't check it out in the last moments, you know what they did? They found them tied back to back. They took their pistol belts, hooked them together, put them around both of them, and fastened them. There around them was the last remaining of their ammunition. They had fought till they ran out of ammunition, and the V.C. came in and they killed them. But they fought and went out together, back to back, right down to the last round of ammunition. I read that story and I thought to myself, in 1967-68, a PFC in the Marine Corps made $127 a month. There's two boys that did what they did for Uncle Sam for $127 a month. When I hear that heard that story, It formed my whole concept of ministry. What am I looking for in ministry? What I look for in young men and young ladies? What I look for in people that say to me, Bob, I want to have part of this. You know what I look for? I look for just that. I look for young men and young ladies that will say, I don't want part of your ministry. I want to get tied back to back. We may get killed. We may get overrun. We may get wiped out. But you know what? We'll go out with the same perspective, the same purpose, the same passion, and the same patience. The problem I find with most God's people, they're shooting blanks. You make a big noise when you go off, but you never hit nothing. That's what I look for. That's all the ministry means to me. It's giving me young men and young ladies that will say, you know what? I ain't there yet, but I want to get there. Take me everything I can. Teach me everything. I, if, I could just get, if I could just get 20 people in this church that would not lose their focus, we'd get it done. Every head bowed and every eye closed.